right, well, welcome to Living Hope Church. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you have children that are going down to Children's Church or down to uh, nursery, they can dismiss out the back with Miss Melody. Uh, if your kids are staying with us, there's some activities on that back table that they are free to grab and use throughout the service. Um, so today we are continuing to just look at some standalone uh, narratives that teach us about who God is, how he loves us, and how it is we relate to him. And so today we're going to venture from the New Testament back to the Old Testament to um, an incredible story of faith and the struggle that faith can be for us to, to find or to have. And this story is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's an incredible story. It's a story we've looked at before. Uh, but I hope it's a story that we can relate with once again as we as individuals in a church walk towards deeper faith and trust in God. I say it every week, but this is uh, just one of my favorite stories. Um, so as we step into 2 Kings chapter 5, let me give you just a little bit of background on the characters and a little bit of the backstory. Um, so the first name that we have to know in this story is the name Elisha. And Elisha is not to be confused with Elijah, uh, but he was instead the prophet that followed Elijah, and he's this incredible man of God. As a prophet, Elisha was used by God to communicate God's will and his message and his desires to the people. The second character we have to know in this story is Naaman. Uh, and Naaman was a high-ranking commander in the army of Syria, or other translations might say Arameans. And Naaman and the Arameans, they are enemies of Israel and enemies of God's people. Right? Naaman, when we meet him, he is the last person that we would ever expect to come to faith in God or to experience God's goodness and blessing. And although out Naaman was outside of God or, or outside of God's people, he had an understanding of who God was. He had an understanding of how God works. And so he's eventually going to meet Elijah, and he has these expectations of how the prophet and how God is going to move or heal in his life. He has this idea of who God is in his mind, of who Elijah is, and how things should be done. Right? And these ideas, these expectations are not going to be fulfilled the way he expects. And what we see and what we know is that we do the same thing. When we pray, we pray expecting God to answer in certain ways. When we come to faith, we expect it to feel and be a certain way. When we come to church, we have expectations of what that should look like. When we think about who God is, we have expectations of how we believe that God should act. And so we in our humanity, like Naaman, we often put God in a box and we have expectations of him that are not right and are not biblical. God in his sovereignty and his goodness and his love answers and saves just as he desires. Often we desire or expect God to act in grandiose and miraculous ways, but God often God answers in still, quiet voices. Right? We pray for healing, and God often just sends us to a doctor. We pray for financial help, and it's often a second job or a small raise that he uses to provide. We pray for a friend's salvation, for him to come to faith, and God often says, go and share and love them. Right? God doesn't always answer in the mind-blowing, but he answers and he provides. And so this applies not just to God, but also to church and to church leaders, right? We all have these man-centered and man-made ideas of what church and, and what a pastor should be, and often these are far from biblical. And so as you know, we talked about it earlier, my weeks as pastor of Living Hope are coming to an end. And we talked about it, but next week, Reuben will be coming in view of a call. And so again, if you can be here, please be here. But yet, whether or not it's Reuben or someone else that we call to be our next pastor, we will soon have a new leader and a new pastor. And when that new pastor comes, thank goodness they will not be like me. They will not think like me. Right? Hopefully they won't look like me. And I want you to know that's okay. Right? There will be many things that will stay the same at the church, and there will be many that change, and that's okay. 
Right? I fully believe that God sent us to Green River, and we have done what God called us to do at Living Hope. And I believe that the next leader will be the person that's going to have the vision for the future and what's next at Living Hope. And I simply don't have that, but I can't wait to see how it unfolds. And so as we transition in these next few months, don't let your personal expectations get in the way of what God desires to do in this community, in this church, and in your life through Living Hope. Right? I, from the outside, I'm so excited to see what is next and what God's going to do. I'm excited to pray and cheer for you as you move forward. I'm so excited to help and encourage from my new role in the state convention. Because I believe that God is going to continue to do a great work through Living Hope. But don't let your expectations and your desires get in the way of God's desires and his plans. Because as we see with Naaman, that so often happens. Our expectations get in the way of what God desires to do. Our expectations get in the way of us seeing how God is moving. Our expectations get in the way of, of his greater ways, his, his desire to do more than we can imagine. So often our expectations of God keep us from seeing, receiving, and hearing from him. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. And we're going to see how God answer, answers Naaman's need in an unexpected way. And how more than that, how God answers and meets Naaman's greatest need that he didn't even know he had. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It reads, Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. Your translation may say, say Syria. It's the same thing. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now the funny thing here is he had given them victory, but he had given them victory over who? He had given them victory over Israel, God's people. Naaman was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. That's a huge comma, and it's a big placement of this word, but. Leprosy was the most feared disease in the world at that time. Leprosy wasn't understood, and there was no cure. Leprosy would begin with a little white patch of skin. It would look like a rash. It would break out, and then it would spread across your body. But in that moment that you saw that first white patch of skin on your body, you knew that your life was over. Right? Leprosy would spread across your body, ravishing it until you succumbed to infection and died. There was no cure, and they believed it was highly contagious. So as a leper, you would be required to leave your family, your friends, your community, and you would live in leper colonies with other lepers. If anyone that, that wasn't a leper came close to you, you would have to shout out, unclean, for all to hear. And so Naaman here, he has likely first spotted this leprosy, and he knows what awaits him. Right? In the Jewish culture, lepers weren't even allowed to enter the temple, so they were physically isolated and spiritually isolated. And for Naaman as, a, Naaman, as a pagan, he is even more isolated from God. And at this moment, it seems like he has no hope in this life or the next. Verse 2, it, said, it says, Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and a set, uh, and ten sets of clothing. We'll pause just for a second, but scholars say this is a huge amount of money. Right? They say this would be worth millions of dollars of gold and silver today. In addition to the millions of dollars, he takes with him clothes, which were royal clothes, and were hard to find and hard to get and were very valuable. And so we see in this that Naaman is a valued guy. 
He is an important guy in the kingdom. And the king himself sends his absolute best to the king of Israel to try and help Naaman get the help he needs. Right? These people are desperate. This is the person with all the money in the world. They're traveling the world. They're paying exorbitant fees to do anything to stop the disease, to heal the cancer that is ravaging their body. He's got all the resources, and he's going to try and buy his healing. Verse 6. It says, The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel thinks, how am I going to heal this man of his leprosy? He thinks that this is some sort of a trick, and Aram has sent this, uh, sent this man as a way to pick a fight with him. He thinks he's looking for war, and Israel has already been beaten by him. They don't want to go back to war. They don't want to fight again. And so he tears his clothes in an act of humility, and he sends Naaman on his way, begging him not to attack. Verse 8, when Elisha, the prophet, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his ropes, he sent him this message. He said to the king, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. This is such an important verse. It's a key verse. We're going to come back to it. But Elisha senses that God is up to more than just curing this man's leprosy. Elisha senses that God is after this man's heart and that he wants to reveal himself as God and prove that there is indeed a God in Israel. The one true God is in Israel. And that's what Elijah's statement is saying. He's saying there's more going on than leprosy. God is trying to reveal himself to this man. Verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. I love this. Naaman shows up with all the money in the world. He shows up with this incredible caravan of people. He's an incredible dignitary. And Elijah doesn't even go out to meet him. But instead he sends his assistant to share the message. Verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. That he would wave his hand over the spot and that he would cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I just wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and he went off in rage. Naaman is furious. He expected a ceremony. He expected to be greeted by this great prophet. He expected God to act miraculously. He even had a way of how he expected him to wave his hand and heal him. He expected to be healed on the spot. And no one had done what he had expected. And the prophet says the cure is to wash in the Jordan River. Right? This doesn't make sense to him. In most places, the Jordan River, if you look at it, the Jordan River looks like, more like a muddy creek than it does the mighty rivers of Naaman's homeland. And so Naaman's expectations haven't been met, and he leaves mad. Right? He's mad that he has his disease in this first place. He's mad things didn't go the way he thought they should go. He's mad that the prophet treated him disrespectfully. He's mad at this meaningless, seemingly meaningless task he's been given. This man is an officer of the Syrian army. If he is to go out and start dipping in the Jordan, people are going to gather. People are going to see his disease. People are going to ridicule him as he splashes in this creek. No way, he thinks to himself, and he heads off in rage. His expectations weren't met, and he heads off in rage. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, 
If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Right, this is some brave servants. They say to Naaman, if the prophet asked you to do something great and dangerous, you would have done it because that's what you expected. But at this simple act, you refuse and you won't go and wash. Don't we do the same thing? We would all do the grandiose, but we struggle to do the daily. We would all run in front of a car and save a child or run into a burning building. But often when God calls us to do something simple like humble ourselves and trust Him for salvation or get baptized or walk across the street and share the gospel with a neighbor or across the hall and share with a coworker, we refuse. Right? All of us will go and share our faith in a foreign land, but we struggle to share it at home with those we love. We often prefer the dramatic or the flashy because that's what we think God should call us to do. We think that's how God should act. And we, like Naaman, we often refuse to do the simple, the everyday, because we have expectations that God should act different. Verse 14. And so after they tell him to go, Naaman, he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. As the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And so he goes to this muddy creek, and, and you can imagine how foolish he felt and how angry he was, but he got in and he dipped once, twice, three times, four times, five times. He dipped a sixth time. He saw no improvement. And he goes through and he dips that seventh time, and he is healed. I can just imagine just him staring at that spot that was now, that was now, now like that of a young boy for hours. Verse 15. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him. So you have to remember, Naaman is meeting Elisha for the first time. The first time he talked to an assistant, what would you say to this man who had just saved your life? That you were meeting for the first time. What would you say? Thank you for healing me. Thank you for getting rid of the leprosy. Here's what he said. He said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Isn't that amazing? He meets Elisha for the first time, and he doesn't even mention the leprosy. Remember what Elijah had said? He had said back to the king, he said, God, he had said essentially God gave him this leprosy so he could know there's a God in Israel. Right? Naaman didn't come looking for God. He was looking for a cure for leprosy. But God used his search for a cure to lead him to something better than the cure for leprosy. And that's what God does with us so often. So often our pain and our struggles aren't just about our pain and our struggles. They're about drawing us to faith in God or drawing others around us to faith in him. Right, we see in our lives, in this story, God is more concerned about meeting our greatest need, which is our sin and separation from God, than he is just meeting our greatest perceived need. And that's what he does for Naaman. He cures his leprosy, but more importantly, we will see he has cured his heart. And Naaman has found saving faith in God. Verse 16. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So Elijah knows that to receive this gift might confuse the world watching. Remember, Naaman had started this process thanking and believing that he could purchase a miracle with his riches. And if he ended up uh, giving the gift, even in gratefulness, it might lead people to assume he had been able to buy it. And that's the thing we know about the gospel. It must be understood the gospel is a free gift of grace. The religions of the world say, I, if I do certain things for God, then he will owe me. The gospel, the good news of Jesus says, it recognizes that salvation is a gift. And in, and in that, we say, God, I owe you everything for what you've done for me. Okay, let me pray for us, and then we will walk through this. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for who you are, God. We thank you that you are a God who saves. 
God, we thank you that you are a God that has made a way for us to be saved from our greatest need, which is our sin that separates us from you. God, I, I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, today might be the day they surrender their life and follow after you. And God, for those that are followers, Jesus, I pray that you would call us to deeper faith. God, so often in our lives, you take away uh, the comforts and ease of life, Lord, to call us to deeper faith. God, you call us to trust you with our future. You call us to trust you with our family, with our lives, with our church. And God, I pray that as we walk through this, Lord, that you would help us, that you would call us, that you would lead us to deeper faith in you. God, we love you. We thank you that you are worthy of our trust and faith. And God, we pray that we be a people of faith in you. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. And so this morning, as we walk, kind of rewalk through this story, what I want uh, to look at is not only how God healed Naaman, but more importantly, how Naaman came to know the one true God. Remember, Naaman came from an enemy nation. He was an enemy officer. He worshiped his own gods, yet the true God of the universe met him and met his greatest need. And what we see in Naaman's story is so often our own story. And it's a story that we pray many in our community and our friends and family groups will experience as well. And so the first thing I want us to see today is why Naaman came to God. In Naaman's life, it was a crisis, a tragedy, a sudden change in the norm of his life that sent him searching for answers. And so point one is a disruption sent Naaman to God. As you think about Naaman, he had it all. He had power. He had prestige. He was trusted in his sphere of influence. He had the king's ear and access to the king's riches. He was an important enough man that the king would not only send a letter of recommendation, to get him healed, but he would foot the bill. Naaman had it all. He didn't have a physical or material need in the world. And in many ways, Naaman, it, it represents, it is like most of us in America. Now, we don't have access to the president, but a lot of people in America grow up and live their lives in relative comfort. Right? Many aren't worried about their next meal. Many of us aren't worried about having clothes to wear. We, we enjoy luxuries of comfortable houses and cars and heat and air conditioning. We turn on our faucet and it always has clean water. For most of us, we live our lives in relative comfort without real day-to-day need. And because of that, many of our stories of faith involve a time where the comforts and stability of our life were shaken up by something out of our control. Right? Sometimes it was a health crisis like Naaman. Sometimes it was a financial crisis. Sometimes it was an emotional, relational crisis. But for many of us, there was something in our life that disrupted our routine and our norm, and it sent us searching for answers. Right? I believe this is absolutely true of our salvation story and how we come to faith, but it's also true of our walk with Jesus. For me, at least, my greatest growth in faith, those times where I have had to trust God the most, have come when I faced a disruption, a trial, a transition, and I was forced to trust God when things were out of my control. Right? I know I'm facing that right now. We as a church are facing that as we move forward. We are creatures of comforts. We always gravitate towards comfort. But God is forcing us out of that as a church, and we are having to trust God. And I believe he's going to use this time to call us to deeper faith as individuals in a church, to trust him. And I know he is already doing that in many of your lives. He's doing that in my life and my family's life as we leave the comfort and known behind. God uses disruption to call us to faith, and he uses disruption to call us to deeper faith. And that's what we see in Naaman's life as well. A disruption leads him to God for the first time. We talked about it, but leprosy was a death sentence. It was the worst thing that could happen to a person at that time. But it was leprosy that would disrupt Naaman's life and bring him to God. You think about this. Without leprosy, Naaman would have never known God and known eternal life. 
Isn't that amazing? Without leprosy, without this death sentence, Naaman would have never known God, and he would have never known eternal life. Right? That's many of our stories as well. Naaman was confident his greatest problem, his greatest need was that spot developing on his body, which meant death. But Naaman's real greatest need was sin and the death it was leading to in his soul. And leprosy is such a beautiful picture of what sin does. And that's why it's talked about so often in the Bible. Sin deadens. It grows in you. It corrupts you more and more over time as you gradually lose feeling. The Bible says all of our souls have a disease, which is sin. It's terminal and it's eternal. The Bible says the wages or the cost of our sin is death. And that every man, woman, and child, if they don't know Jesus, will experience separation from God. But the other half of that verse says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're going to see it was a disruption, a crisis that sent Naaman looking for answers. And it was God he found, and it was God who saved. And that can be our story as well if we will allow the disruptions and crisis of life to lead us to our Savior. To lead us to our faith for the first time or to greater faith. And so a disruption led Naaman to search for a solution. But how did he come to God? I think there's at least three things it took for him to experience God. And the first thing it took was a humbling of his pride. Throughout Naaman's story, if you notice, he keeps going to kings and to people of power. But when we read his story, God uses slaves and outcasts to save him. The first person that directs him to God and to hope is a Hebrew slave girl. We'll talk about her later, but she was the lowest of low in their society. She was a Hebrew, a slave, a female, a child. Yet she is the one that points him first to life. And her message is not to go to kings, not to go to the best doctors of their time, but she sends it to Elisha. And Elisha is an outcast prophet of the enemy. And then when he arrives at Elisha, it's an assistant that comes to talk to him. And then the solution is to go and dip in a nasty, dirty river. After which Naaman says, no thank you. And it's his servants that talk him into giving it a try. Throughout this story, Naaman's pride was broken down all along the way. And it was made painfully clear to him that everything he had to offer was not a part of the solution. His solution, his saving, his healing came all from God. Naaman showed up with a mass of money, with power and prestige that few of us could have put together. But Elisha dismisses it and says, no, thank you. He says, I don't want it, I don't need it, and it's no good here. Naaman's power, wealth, works, reputation couldn't save him. Only God could. And so what's the message for us? The message is God does not save through the strength of man. Your money, your strength, and your power, they are worthless to God. But God saves by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Our salvation, our saving is not found in our ingenuity. It's not found in our money. It's not found in our good works. It's not found in what we have to offer. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. Salvation is found in Jesus who we crucified. Our hope is found not in us, but it is found in Jesus. The cross, it shows us we are powerless to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to contribute to our, to our salvation. And yet, for many people, the thing that keeps them from coming to Jesus is their pride and their desire for control. It takes great humility to say, I can't do it on my own. It takes great humility to say that I trust my life to Jesus. It takes great humility to say, I can't do it, but I believe he paid it all. And so the question for you today is, have you ever trusted your life to Jesus? Or are you working to save yourself and do it on your own? And just think about the humility and desperation Naaman showed all along the way. It took great humility to cross the border and admit that hope and rescue wasn't found in this hometown. 
It took great humility to trust a slave girl that he knew and felt he was better than. It took great, uh, it took great humility to listen to the assistant to the prophet as opposed to the prophet himself. It took great humility to go and dip in a muddy river in front of many people watching. It took great humility to listen to his servants over his own instincts. Naaman had to be humbled to come to salvation. And so it took great humility for Naaman to find healing and salvation. And so maybe you're here today and you've always thought that God was just a crutch for the weak. You thought you had no need for God. My challenge for you would be to have the courage and humility to investigate, to ask questions, to consider that maybe God is not a crutch. And maybe he is indeed who he says he is. Maybe he is indeed the creator, sustainer, and he is the savior that loves you so much. He died and he offers you life. But you have the courage and the humility to consider that. And if you're here and you're a follower of God, a follower of God, deeper faith, a closer walk with Jesus will always require a humbling of our pride. To learn to walk dependent on Jesus, we have to let go of our pride, our desire for control and comfort and trust that his ways are better than our own. To trust that he is good, that he is sovereign. So Naaman had to humble himself to find salvation. The second thing it took for Naaman to find God was a courageous proclaimer. In his case, it took multiple courageous proclaimers. For Naaman to experience God, it took two different servants courageously challenging him and pointing him to God. The first example is in verses 2 through 3. It says, Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is, who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. You think about this young girl's life. She had been taken from her homeland. She had been taken from her family. She had taken, been taken from her friends, but yet she still trusted in God and had the boldness to tell her master about God and his ability to heal. Right? That had to take courage just to speak up and even more courage to point them to a God that was not their own and that was not in their homeland. Right? I'm sure she could have been killed for speaking up and saying this. The second courageous person that points name to God likely wasn't a follower himself, but I would imagine he too left having experienced the power of God. After meeting Elisha's attendant, Naaman is furious and ready to leave if it's not for a courageous servant stepping up and challenging him to listen. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? And for us as Christians, this is us. This is our responsibility. We are called to proclaim and point people to Jesus with our lives and with our words. Often this won't be easy, the easy thing to do, but instead we'll take courage to proclaim the good news of Jesus and a God that loves to our friends and neighbors. There will be part of us that says, what if? What if they don't receive it? What if they get mad at me? What if it's awkward? What if it ends our friendship? But when we believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, to life, to spiritual healing, we, like these servants, are compelled to share the hope of our God. We say this verse all the time, but Paul in Romans 10, 14 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching or sharing or proclaiming to them? As you think about it, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your story. Someone somewhere along the way shared Jesus with you through words or through pointing you to the Bible. Someone along the way loved you enough, cared about you enough to have the courage to proclaim the hope of Jesus with you. And so as you sit here today, who has God put in your life that you need to faithfully and courageously proclaim the good news of Jesus with? Maybe it's someone who, like Naaman, is going through a crisis or a disruption. Maybe it's someone whose life seems great, but they need the hope of Jesus in their life. 
God has you where you are for a purpose, and that purpose is to make him known and bring him glory. Again, look at this first servant girl. She had been taken from everything she knew, from her family, from her friends, from the life as she knew it. And yet God was using that tragedy to place her in Naaman's household for a purpose. Instead of turning from God when tragedy struck, she clung to God and she made him known. In the same way, God has you where you are for a purpose. And that is to worship him and make him known. When you are a follower of Jesus, life is not an accident. And you may say, well, I don't like where I'm at. I don't like where I live. I don't like where I work. I don't like where I go to school. That might be very true. So I think about this servant girl, I'm sure she would not have chosen to be in the position she was in. But even when things go wrong or are meant for evil, like in the life of Joseph, which we studied, God redeems and he orchestrates those things for his glory. So even if you don't like where you are or don't understand where you are, you could trust that God has you there for a reason if you're a follower of Jesus. And that reason is to make him known. We see here God even uses the tragedies and the sickness in our life as believers to put us in places to proclaim and make him known to people we would have otherwise never met. Nothing is by accident in God. So trust him with your circumstances and trust the people around you are there for a purpose. And God has chosen you to be his vessel to proclaim his good news of Jesus to them. So Naaman is humbled. He is told about God. And then finally, he must obey in a simple act of obedience. To experience salvation, to experience God, it takes a last, it takes a simple act of obedience. For Naaman, it wasn't enough to meet Elisha's servant. It wasn't enough to know what he needed to do to be healed. It took a simple act of obedience, of believing and dipping himself in the Jordan to be healed. <coughs> in the same way, it's not enough for us to just know about God. It's not enough for us just to believe there is a God. It's not enough for us just to read the Bible or come to church on Sundays. It takes a simple act of humbling ourselves and trusting Jesus with our lives to be saved. Most famous book in the Bible, John 3, 16, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God has made the way that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It says you have to believe. You have to trust Jesus with your life, and then you will be saved. For Naaman, when he dipped, he was healed. His skin became that, like that of a baby. For us, when we trust in Jesus, we become a new creation. We become saved in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. The Bible says without Jesus, we all have a terminal disease. The wage or consequence of our sin is death, but life is available to all that will humble themselves and trust Jesus, their Lord and Savior. So if you've never done that, would you humble yourself? Would you repent from your sin and ask Jesus for, for forgiveness? It takes a simple act of asking for help and forgiveness, but it makes an eternal difference. So if you've never trusted Jesus in your life, would you do that today? Would you come and talk with me? Would you go to someone you know that's a follower of Jesus and ask your questions? Investigate who he is. And if you're ready, take that simple act of obedience and follow him. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, there is likely an area in your life where God is calling you to simply obey him and trust him. The story from Naaman is don't let your pride or your expectations or your fears get in the way of obeying God. Naaman's expectations weren't met. He feared embarrassment. His pride said no. But it wasn't until he let go of those things and obeyed that he experienced God. In your life, there are things God clearly calls you to do, but your pride and your fears and your feelings will often say no, just like Naaman's did. And so my encouragement, my prayer for you today is to let go of those things and simply obey God. 
What is God calling you to do today? So as we wrap up and Emily comes to play, what is God calling you to do? Maybe you're here and you need to trust and experience, uh, experience Jesus' forgiveness of sins like Naaman for the first time. You need to respond in a simple act of obedience and surrender your life and follow after him. Maybe you have to have the courage and ask your questions. Or maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and God is calling you to give up an area of sin in your life. He is calling you to, to surrender an area, area of your life and trust him with your, with your time, with your resources, with your family, with something else. Maybe he's calling you to trust him in that first step of obedience in baptism. Maybe he's calling you just to trust him with church or to commit to the church or to get involved. My prayer is God would make it clear what he is calling you to do, that you would have the faith and courage to obey. Even when our expectations aren't met, even when things don't go the way we think they should, we can trust in God and trust his ways. I love this story of Naaman because it's a beautiful picture of not only salvation, but what it means to trust Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. Again, as I pray, Emily will come. And I just want you, as she plays, just spend a few moments just reflecting on who God is and his faithfulness and his goodness in your life. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for the way that you love us. God, we thank you that with you, everything is intentional, Lord. And we thank you as we look back on our life for those disruptions and those heartaches and those trials that you have used to call us to faith you've used to call us a deeper faith. God, I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would humble them like you humbled Naaman. God, that people would be faithful to proclaim your good news in their life. Lord, that they would simply obey and follow after you. God, I pray if there's someone here that hasn't done that, Lord, that they might be the day that they simply obey and follow after you. And God, I pray for those of us here that are followers of you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would call us a deeper faith. Lord, that you would reveal to us those areas of our life where, where we, are, we are letting our expectations or our pride get in the way of following you. God, I pray that as we reflect and pray, Lord, that you would clearly reveal those areas where we need to trust you and stop, stop trusting ourselves. Stop expecting things that aren't going to happen. Lord, that we would look for you. So God, I pray you would reveal those areas, Lord, and we would walk forward in courage and faith and humility in them. And God, so I just pray in these next few moments, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would speak clearly, Lord, and we would have the courage to follow you. God, we thank you that you save those from enemy nations, Lord, and you thank you that you save people that look like us. God, may we be faithful proclaimers of your good news. It's your name we pray. Amen.